0: you're listening to the inverse podcast where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo i'm drew Hart, and i'm jared mckenna and this is inverse
1: I'm really grateful for our guest today. We've got Kelly Denton-Borhag. She has long been investigating how religion and violence collide in American war culture. She teaches in the Global Religions Department at Moravian University. She's the author of two books, U.S. War Culture, Sacrifice and Salvation. And more recently, her newest book is And Then Your Soul is Gone, Moral Injury and U.S. War Culture. She recently wrote Why are so many military brothers and sisters taking their own lives from TomDispatch.com? And you can see her faculty website for more information about additional publications and podcasts um, as you explore her work around religion, moral injury, theology, and ethics. Kelly, thank you for joining us on Inverse Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course, Kelly, um, we'd love to give you an opportunity just to uh, sketch a little bit of your new project, the new book, and uh, I guess in particular for those who aren't familiar um, with the discourse, uh, moral injury and the centrality of it um, for this new book for you.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Actually, um, I I have to go back a little ways to Mm -hmm. set the context for how this new book came about. Um, I really never anticipated working in this area of war culture in the United States.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, but, um, I'm, uh, I'm old enough to have had a, a well-developed critical consciousness when the events of 9-11 took place now 20 years hmm. ago.
3: Yeah.
2: And, um, just prior to that, I had been, um, completing a dissertation in which, I was really immersed in all kinds of theological literature, especially involving women thinkers and writers who were developing various criticisms um, around traditional understandings of Christian soteriology, and in particular, um, understandings that centralized sacrifice. So um, I had been mapping out some of these voices and trying to sort through and look at all of these different arguments. And that was the work that I was involved in. Um, And then 9-11 happened. So I was really highly attuned to, I was really highly sensitized to this language and the logic of sacrifice and uh, the problematic nature of that, especially for all kinds of marginalized populations, not only in the United States, but around the world. And then, you know, um, people of my age (laughs) or even younger will remember that um, in the United States, after those events, um, our culture really shifted in some very important and deep ways. Um, And uh, in particular, what happened was that there was a surging of sacrificial rhetoric that entered into political as well as popular discourse Yeah. Um, Talking about the um, necessity of war as sacrifice. Yeah. And um, again, I really noticed this. I it 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 it, it sort of hit me like a frontal assault, I have to say, um, because I I I was sensitized, I guess, in ways that maybe other people weren't. And um, I also noticed how that same kind of um, language around war. Um, was constantly also then, sort of uh, being referenced or being upheld or or linked to Christian language, to language mm. about Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. So um, my attention was riveted, <laughs> and I I started looking into it, and um, you know I I it was like. Um, this thorny knot that dropped into my lap and I began to try to address it and try to disentangle it. And eventually that resulted in my first book. Um, So this is work that I've been doing for a long time. Um, But then around 2011 or so, still involved in this, I had the opportunity to hear Jonathan Shea at a remarkable conference that took place in New York City at Riverside Church. Mm. Jonathan Shea is an eminent um, psychologist who worked for many years with the Veterans Affairs. uh, And um, he he really, um, his his work was centered largely with Vietnam veterans um, trying to assist them with the the just overwhelming shame, resentment, anger, guilt that was destroying far too many lives. And at this conference that I attended, I heard him use the language of moral injury. I had never heard that term before. And he had coined that language in around 2009 Mm. to try to talk about this wound of war that uh, was invisible and um, was not Uh, a mental illness, not a pathology, but uh, really emerged out of a very, very deep-seated moral pain that these people were experiencing. And once again, my attention was just captured um, by listening to him as well at that conference to um, other veterans of war and war correspondents Um, who also spoke about their experiences of war and their own moral pain. Uh, And um, that night, after I I, I heard him and heard some of these others, I I returned to my hotel room, and my mind was just churning (laughs) with everything that I had heard. I pulled out a big yellow pad, and I just started writing down thoughts, because I knew that there was something in all of this, that um, I needed to try to capture for myself. Yeah. And eventually that night it came to me that, that I, I said to myself, you know, if, if we really listened in the United States to the voices of these people who are so suffering with moral injury, we would find it very difficult to continue in the heedless, thoughtless way that mm-hmm. we have with the war culture that we have created, are responsible for and continue to maintain at all costs. It yeah. would just be very, very difficult for us to continue to do that. And that really was the germ of this second book, um, that, yeah. that sort of light bulb moment.
3: Yeah.
2: And, um, and after that, then I, you know, I, I, I really started immersing myself in, in what was just a, a beginning um, tsunami. Uh, of what would, uh, of, of what would develop into a, just a huge, um, a, a huge array of, of moral injury research. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's really taken off in about the last 10 years. And, um, and so I'm, I'm one of many scholars who, um, who is working in this area, but maybe I might just say one other thing about the book, because, um, I think that my, my, my work is, a. a I hope it's it's a helpful and I think it's somewhat of a unique contribution to moral injury research because um, my, my aim is to um, expand the way that we address moral injury in the research. Um, I became aware that a lot of moral injury research importantly and necessarily focused on trying to understand and address and ameliorate the devastating impacts of moral injury in the lives of individuals. And that is truly important work. But, um, but, but my emphasis is somewhat different. I wanna understand, and this is why I wrote the book, I, want to, I wanted to understand how moral injury inevitably grows out of and is linked to US war culture. Mm -hmm. And and so what I try to do in the book is really to create a social analysis of of moral injury. And um, I not only address the the direct violence of moral injury, but I'm I'm really especially interested in trying to trace both structural and cultural forms of violence in the United States that give rise to this phenomenon. So that's what the book is about.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's so good. And I think, honestly, like, that's why I believe that your work is so important. It's precisely at that point, I mean, all of it is important, but but the way in which you are drawing us in to do some, as a society, look in the mirror, right, so to speak, mm-hmm. and to think through our own complicity and not respond in the ways that we are so tempted to, as you said in your own book, Right. To either valorize or pathologize or demonize, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that there's some soul-searching work that this nation, our nation's got to do. And 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 I think that emphasis on the war culture that exists that I certainly encountered for the very first time on a Christian college, right? I didn't. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's is powerful and it's so needed. Um, and I really interested in just uh, hearing more from you on these. But, but before we go any further, though, I'd really love for you to um, ground us in a scripture. What passage have you picked to kind of um, just set the tone and atmosphere for our conversation today?
2: I'm going to have us look at a passage from, from the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter. And starting with verse 9. Fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in the in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command: love each other.
0: Amen. Uh, Kelly, I'm so aware the, the passage you have chosen and how it uh, how it functions and features in uh, Australia's uh, creation ethos um, is directly related to war. Um, no one minds if you. Uh, don't go to synagogue or mosque uh, or, or church or temple um, but if uh, if you don't um, at least passively support Anzac Day which is kind of the creation myth around the Australian and New Zealand troops um, uh, that it, it's a it's a cultural blasphemy um, but before we get into this text and how it's used uh, um, in ways that, point away from the life of Jesus um, and is co-opted by other stories. Uh, we try and take seriously that um, biography is theology. Um, we'd love to ask you, when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? Do you have early memories of the Bible
2: in your life? I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, um, my, my, my my parents, um especially in my life as a child this changed a little bit once I became a teenager Um, but they were not really church-going people they were not really sort of religious people but my grandmother my maternal grandmother oh my gosh she was Mm. Um, she was a devout follower of Billy Graham and she had this bible with a leather cover that was well worn and she took it with her everywhere and she would come to stay with us um, on the weekends and I was one of those kids that woke up way too early in the morning and would bother my parents (laughs) (laughs) and so when my grandmother came to to stay with us on the weekends I would um, wake up really early in the morning (laughs) and I would head to her room. And she was just the most loving and generous, gracious soul. She would invite me to climb under the covers with her and she would um, teach me Bible verses and have me memorize them. And if I memorized a verse, she would give me a piece of candy. And so, and one of the very first verses that she had me memorize was John 3.16. <laughs> so as I as really, a Billy
0: Graham fan, that's appropriate. I, right? I
2: really think of my grandmother as my um, my spiritual, you know, forebear in terms of the work that I do, oddly, and, and in some ways, sort of ironically, <laughs> I'm not sure what she would think about what I do. <laughs> but In some ways she's responsible. <laughs>
1: yep, yep. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. So I'm, I'm curious then, like, as you think about your early encounters with scripture, um, I'm really interested in hearing, as you think about your own story, like, how were you experiencing Scripture? Uh, what what kind of function did it play in your life? Was it um, experienced as liberating or oppressive? Um, did you encounter it as harmful or healing? Uh, what, what what was that's being presented or, to you? Sweet or
3: sour? Sweet or sour.
1: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but what was being presented to you, and how how and I'm both interested. I always like to hear. How you were experiencing it at the time, and then also maybe as you look back at that time.
2: Yeah. Sure. Um, Well, I I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and um, and I um, I and my and and later my family, but first first I and my siblings ended up getting involved in this Lutheran church, mostly because our next door neighbors invited us to go, (laughs) and my parents took us to Sunday school. Um, and in my case, it just kind of took. And, um, uh, from a, a pretty young age, um, not only was I involved in Sunday school, but I was involved in Bible studies. And this was something that, you know, kids in churches in the 1970s, you know, we, we took this seriously. And, um, I was, um, from a pretty young age, like eleven, I was reading my Bible and I was um, trying to understand it. And I was meeting weekly with other young people, and we were talking about it, um, and we were doing our best to try to figure it out and apply it to our lives. Um, you know, now as I look back on all of that, I have I have a whole array of reactions. In some ways, I'm just amazed that we did that <laughs> without anyone telling us to. We wanted to. Um, I'm horrified by some of the things that we thought about the Bible and some of the interpretations we had. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, you know, the relationships and also the focus on in community trying to figure out what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and to live a life in accordance with his. Um, and the, this, this church that I grew up in was um, in many ways a very politically conservative church, but I love the fact that it was um, it was also a place that you couldn't just put into that box neatly or easily. Hmm. Because um, in that same congregation, again, at a very early age, I was invited to become an assistant teacher for English as a second language class that somebody started at the church as sort of a ministry. And that then put me into a place of... Being present to hear the life stories of economic and war refugees who had landed in Los Angeles from all over the world.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, And my little sort of privileged white middle class background was really rocked by listening to all of these people um, coming into, you know, the little church classroom and trying to learn English and along the way sharing their stories with us. Um, and in addition to that, the, 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 the head pastor of the church, um, a middle-aged man who was around the same age as my father, um, encouraged me to go to seminary and I'd never even seen a woman minister. This is like, you know, the early eighties and, um, Lutherans had only been ordaining women since 1970. So, it was it was um, it was both, um, in some ways, you know, conservative, and in other ways, um, very open ended. And I think I, um, I, I, you know, now as I look back, mostly I am very grateful for the formation that I received. Um, from that from that place and, and those dear people, who cared about me.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's beautiful, Kelly. Um, uh, engaging your work, it's so clear that um, listening is an important practice, um, both for you personally and as an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think of um, gifts that come out of uh, your work, your witness. Um, Uh, that you would offer to others um, as helpful ways for them to read the Bible in ways that do truly liberate. Um, What are the the things or um, even experiences that come to mind for you?
2: When I was in seminary, one of my um, Hebrew Bible professors admonished all of us. Along these lines, in a way that I always remembered and took to heart, and and again, um, especially during the years that I was working as a as a as a pastor or more in ministry, sort of before I I became more of an academic, he said, um, study (laughs) (laughs) Mm. study the Bible. (laughs) You know, pick a book of the Bible every year and focus on it, um, get the best scholarship on it you can lay your hands on, read multiple and diverse and conflicting perspectives on it, talk to other people about it, um, teach it. Um, and, um, you know, um, over many years, especially during the years when I was preaching and um teaching more within uh, now I I, I I teach in sort of a non-parochial setting but when I was teaching in Christian settings uh, you know I took that very seriously and over the course of, of, of many years focused on different um, on, on different books on, on different parts of the Bible and um, wow that was just um, I think some of the best advice that I could have gotten mm-hmm. Um and and I think what that did for me is that it, it really helped me to appreciate the complexity, the ambiguity, um, the um, the depth, um, the um, the oppressive as well as the liberating yeah. aspects of um, of of sacred texts, and the ways in which um, in in which Uh, you know, a um, a sacred text from the Bible could both um, be responsible for um, encouraging or underwriting violence, as well as calling it out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so um, so that that has made a huge difference in my life. And That's always something that I try to do, especially with my students, to try to help them to to see that um, there are many layers and and the layers don't all agree with one another. Mm -hmm. And and the importance of sitting sitting with the contradictions and um, the ways that things oftentimes don't match up. Um, and um and not having to resolve it all. That's been important yeah. to me. Wow.
1: You know, Kelly, I've literally just had a conversation this week with my own students um um on those similar lines, right? Just wrestling because a student, we were we we're working our way through James Cohn's God of the Oppressed, always making my students read that for African American theology class. And uh, one of my students, um, very astute, asked the question of like, you know. Um, Cone is clearly, is 1975, Cone is clearly um, deeply steeped in this African-American tradition of the exodus motif having such a pivotal place, right? And they asked the classic question, what does this mean for Native Americans as they read these mm-hmm. texts? And and I led them into this idea that we've got to sit in some tension there, right? right. Um, that at the very same story, um, um Different communities can hear different things and it can mean different yeah. things based on their lived experiences, right? Um, and and that and then led into a bigger conversation around just how because I'm just always trying to help my I have a lot of conservative evangelical students as to just help them this idea that we don't have to always have you know the easy answers, we can have the dissonance, right? And, and music is beautiful and it can also be really beautiful in terms of the wisdom that we can gain from wrestling with the tensions that exist sometimes, even as we're kind of working and grappling and, and reaching for understanding in scriptures. And so, yeah, anyway, so I just had that conversation um, and I really appreciate you That's bringing marvelous. that out. Yeah. And uh, I just also just, I mean, it's ironic as you're talking about the own your own ways of, um, you know, being raised and reading scripture, like Many students just don't have that in I know. Christian families that oh, I know. come to oh. Christian college and they, they think they know what the Bible says, but they have ne- clearly never read it before.
3: Um. You
2: know, it's, it's, a, it's such a loss, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and yeah. I, and actually I feel that way about, I mean, I, I talk a lot about religious literacy, yeah. um, because, um, yeah, it's, it, it's it's across the board, um, yeah. not only with Christianity, but with all of the wonderful um, religious, you know, huge, impactful religious traditions a- across the globe. And yeah. um, the the, the I, I, I see this as such a danger in mm. our world and and in the United States that increasingly um, not only are people less and less literate but they, they don't even seem to realize that it might matter. (laughs) It's it's terribly frightening. It really is terribly frightening. And, and, and even will and, you know, as we get into this, this, this passage that I've chosen, you know, it will become, it will become clear because what that does is make people vulnerable to the kinds of uh, uh, exploitative manipulative Mm -hmm. um, and, and just sheer wrongheaded. Yeah. Um, interpretations that can be used to sway people in all kinds of really dangerous and violence-filled um, mm. ways. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, they um, be, be, be because they they frankly lack the education, they they don't realize it. Um, mm. So it's I think it's a it's a huge problem, and it's uh, you know I'll get off my soapbox here, but. I even see it among among some, some colleagues in higher ed who believe that, you know, in today's day and age, um, what's really important is for students to learn skills in higher ed that will help them to succeed in the job market. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh,
2: you know, where does religious studies fit in there? Well, you know, yeah. maybe it's somewhat dispensable yeah. uh, because other things are just more important. And I would, ah! yeah.
0: Right. Or poetry or music or Exactly. Arts.
2: All of the humanities. All the
1: humanities. Yeah, yeah.
0: And yep, yep, yeah. And I, I wonder if some of the transition, and not to preempt anything that um, uh, we hope you explore in, in this text, but um, as our uh, Muslim friends and neighbors um, will refer to us as uh, one of the people of the book, um, that, that sense of people um, maybe is one of the things that we've lost. And uh, while some of us are lamenting um, the, the importance of how um, a particular sacred text plays for us, I wonder if some of it is that we've become uh, persons of a book rather than a people of a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I, I wonder what happens to literacy where it's not seen as an individual thing but a shared thing, where um, songs and liturgies and sacraments, um, are communal expressions, and... Um, because uh, biblical literacy has looked like many different things throughout church history. And one of the things, Kelly, that I hope we kind of touch on is I'm even fascinated around how moral injury as naming that reality um, that um, might uh, lead to ongoing uh, mental illnesses even, and um, uh, that even the framing of it comes out of a uh, a liturgical naming of sin, um, which are like um, uh, both uh, a mission, um, commission, uh, but I'll, I'll allow you to open that up. But I, I wonder if this opportunity um, can be reframed for us around um, developing deeper communities where um, these texts are held together uh, rather than individuals um, maybe being able to list the books in the Bible or something.
2: Right, no, that's a lovely. That's 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 such a, a lovely thought. I, I appreciate that,
0: Kelly. So As you turn to this text, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's that this I think the perfect transition for you to just walk us through um, this passage that you've selected, and we can have a conversation about it.
2: Okay. Um, well, I think it may be. I think what I'd like to do is 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 share my screen. And um, then I'm going to... Oh, uh, it's, it says that I'm disabled from screen sharing.
0: Oh, we can work this out. We can... Okay. Uh, here we go. Uh, so...
2: You may need to make me a co-host.
0: Co-host. You now have the power, I think. All can right, it?
2: perfect. Okay, so I'm gonna share an image with you. Does everybody see that? Yeah. Um, so um, I'll, I'll just describe it for the, for the podcast. Thank um, you, yeah. These are, you, you, there's, there's a kind of graphic in the background of, um, of angelic wings that have superimposed on them, the American flag. And then superimposed on that is a silhouette of um, a soldier who is saluting. Um, and then there is um, language both above and below that graphic. Uh, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life or his friends. So John 15, 13. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a, this is a good place. And, and actually, <laughs> yeah. just so that we don't miss the commodification, <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a, um, a decal that you can purchase um through you know amazon or wherever for 350 to put on your on your vehicle wow. and there's a picture of a truck <laughs> over there to the left that um if we were to if we were to go to this site and click on the truck we could actually see what it looks like once you put it on your truck
1: you gotta have the intersections of religion <laughs> militarism and unbridled capitalism right, there, that's
2: come right. together that's exactly <laughs> it. so um Okay, so I just would like to invite people to hold that in their, in their, in their thoughts, yeah. um, because I'm gonna take us through a few different, um, maybe for lack of a better word, sort of scenes that address these, um, um, these, these sort of cultural intertwinings of this particular passage from John's gospel with elements of, of war culture. So I I want to tell you about another use of this passage um, that that I I came across. Well, actually, I remember again when it happened. This was not long into the um, presidential administration of Donald Trump in the United States. Um, Not too long um, after he uh, became president he um, ordered a military action in Yemen that resulted in um, just terrible consequences. Uh, The death of a a, a Navy SEAL by the name of Ryan Owens, Um, over 20 Yemeni civilians and combatants died and there was also the loss of valuable military equipment. So it was really a disaster. And what happened in the United States after this was that controversy and criticism began to swirl. Um, And um, he was really being taken to task, including by the father of the Navy SEAL who died in this action. Um, And the father, by the way, also is a military veteran. So Trump gathered together with his advisors And um, they determined to have Trump make an address, and it would be his first address, to the the joint houses of Congress. Um, And that he would, among other things, speak about what had happened. So um, for this speech, and you can imagine the kind of symbolic heft and the ritual of this kind of a moment, these are really packed They're packed civil religious moments, at least in a place like the United States. They they didn't invite Ryan's father, the veteran who had criticized what had happened, but they invited Ryan's wife, now a widow, to a special seat in the balcony. And at a pivotal moment in the speech, Trump turned to her, and this is what he said, and I want to read it to you. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you. As the Bible teaches us, there is no greater act of love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Ryan laid down his life for his friends, for his country and for our freedom. We will never forget Ryan. But it doesn't end there because what happened is that then the audience and we have to pay attention to this, the, the response of the audience, the, the people listening, they burst into this emotional applause. Um, r- the, the, the woman, uh, the, the wife, the widow raised her eyes heavenward and her eyes were filled with tears. Uh, and in, in that instant, all of the controversy simply melted away. It was as if it was buried. And, and following that moment, then, um, not only Trump and the members of his administration, but politicians of all stripes and persuasions and media leaders um, said this was uh, the most presidential thing that Trump has done yet in his early administration. And wow. they, they they couldn't praise him highly enough. So what what... What do I want to say about that? I mean, this is a perfect example of these kinds of rhetorical strategies that exploit passages from the Bible to transcendentalize war, to Mm -hmm. promote an endless buildup of militarization in the United States. And simultaneously, what this does is to mute, it conceals the Mm. actual violence um, of U.S. militarization, both at home um, and around the world. Um, But again, it doesn't end there (laughs) Hmm. because this same passage is also used within military cultures. So if you turn to ritual events such as the luminary initiative of the Marine Corps, um, in which um, thousands of luminaries are lighted every last Sunday of September as a commemoration for members of the Marine Corps who have died and for those who are grieving. The same passage holds center stage and it provides the kind of justificatory logic for what is going on. Um, it's a sacrificial logic. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one friends. So I could go on because over the last 20 years, um, I developed this really perverse hobby of collecting these kinds of examples. Mm. Uh, once I became aware of, of, of this stuff. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I, I also, um, you know, I- encourage my friends to send them to me and they do. So it's th- what is fascinating about all of this is that you, um, most of the time it really operates pretty much below the surface of conscious awareness and attention mm-hmm. for the vast majority of people in the united states we we do not have the consciousness we don't have we, we haven't been conscientized to see to be aware of this going on but we are deeply impacted by it nonetheless um and so uh one of the important factors then here again uh, involves this this dynamic of concealment, the concealment yeah. of institutionalized violence, um, as well as um, institutionalized injustice, and the way that religion becomes sort of a pawn in this process. Um, so so um, that's sort of a, a second, if the if the images look the first scene, that's sort of the second scene. But, I wanna take it a little bit further and now I'm gonna kind of take us back into history, okay? Mm. Because um, if we if we look at that passage and we look at that language, greater love you know, has no man than this, um, we, we, we might go to some historical biblical criticism where people are asking, well, uh, how can we sort through the degree to which that saying um, might have been something that Jesus actually said. How do we, how do we, how do we try to get at that? What, what, what are some of the, what are some of the, what are some of the tools that we might use? Um, How can we, how can we, how can we arrive at any kind of uh, maybe deeper understanding about that saying and its placement there in John's gospel? Mm -hmm. And there are some really interesting things in the record of historical biblical criticism about this. So for instance, um, one of the things that we learn is that the idea of laying down one's life for the sake of something or somebody else was an idea that was known in the ancient world. It was not a foreign idea, okay? So so that's important for us to understand. However, um, now it gets a little more complicated because Um, While in the Greek world, um, this was looked upon quite favorably and with acceptance, such was much less the case in the Jewish world um, where rabbis taught that one's own life has to take precedence and that one should not love one's neighbor more than oneself and that giving up one's life was not something a human could decide about without trespassing into the domain of the divine. So now that complicates things for us, right? Um, In terms of trying to figure out how likely is it that Jesus might have actually said something like this? Um, But let me take it even a step further, because um, for... For years now, there is a, um, another little saying that comes out of the, 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 the poetry of the Roman Empire that, um, that, that I've referenced many, many times. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you in the Latin. Maybe you already know it. Uh, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country, for one's fatherland, literally, right? Okay, so you hear the resonance between that passage from John and that passage from the Roman poetry. And it's actually uh, the poet Horace who, um, who, who, who created that line. Um, but I only recently learned a little bit more about the context in which Horace wrote that. And of course, that idea, it is sweet and fitting to die for the fatherland um, is, is absolutely um, central in US war culture. This is something that you find everywhere. Um, in, in the United States, um, it's, it's something that is, frequently on the lips, both of service members as well as uh, grieving family members. Um, you know, this is part of the way that people derive comfort and make sense of events that are just too overwhelming and too horrible to bear. But Horace, as it turns out, was a kind of a court poet. Um, he, he served in, um, in the, um, in the court of Octavian, who had helped to steer the Roman Empire through a very bloody civil war. And he was trying to unify the empire and actually unify himself in his own position as emperor. He in fact, renamed himself Augustus. Um, and that name means reverence, exalted, venerable. And of course we know that in the religion of the Roman empire, there were all kinds of um, resonances around the emperor actually being a God, being divine, right? Yeah. So um, Horace's poems in the service of Octavian and in the service of this court were thought to function as a kind of propaganda, really. Um, Again, a useful sort of rhetorical communicative tool to unify the empire um, and to cast a particular spin on its violence. It is sweet and fitting to die for the fatherland. So how, I mean, this is, this is confusing. This is troubling. <laughs> yeah. um, we might even say that it is really horrifying to find all of, these, all of these threads that connect all of these different scenes that I've just laid out before you. But this is the way that religion works in the service of war culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, these, these tend to be the kinds of connections that happen. They're often below the surface of conscious awareness. However, they're extremely impactful. They affect the way that people think, they affect their perspectives. I call them a form of cultural violence following Johan Gultun, Gultun. Uh-huh. yes. So this is a form of cultural violence and we know that cultural violence tends to be the type of violence that is most difficult to see, yeah. right? Yeah. And yet it's simultaneously, perhaps the most impactful. Yeah. Um, so, um, so mm-hmm. this is, uh, you know, and so, 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 you know, this, this really, um, this really leaves us with um, just, I I would say, you know, a mess.
3: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: And this is good. One of the things that fascinates me is, is what lies behind the mess. Uh, I'm always reminded of um, Jacques Ellul's talk of the um, subversion uh, of the subversion of Christianity (laughs) in his book, the subversion of Christianity that, um, uh, the fact that this language is being called upon, um, uh, that it's imperial language, we have two options. One is that uh, John's gospel is actually buying in and lending itself um, as a uh, ready chaplain uh, to the way that the world is, um, or it's a deliberate subversion of those very dynamics. Um, I, I love how you brought out um, uh, how the rabbinical mainstream um, would not see, uh, this as um, uh, almost, um, uh, legitimate in terms of what you're actually stepping into is the divine life in terms of who can, um, which is actually exactly what's happening in John 15. It's a, it's an invitation to abide in me um, that this is Jesus saying, if, um, so the, the dynamic works, um, uh, look at my life, look at how I've loved, that's how you're to love. Um, and so the implicit um, in this is this nonviolent, self-giving foot washing, if we're going to stay in exactly. John's gospel,
3: um,
0: uh, not this taking up of arms, um, but this humility. And it's fascinating, like in terms of um, Augustine or Augustine, depending on what school uh, you, you went to, right? Um Uh, his commentary on this and I mean by now we're in the fourth century and uh, the all the accusations against uh, the deteriorating Roman Empire are being flung in the direction of this um, upsurge of movement that is popular with women um, and the slave class and uh, he he is trying to um, uh, write something and provide a apologetic for um Christianity not being the reason that the Roman empire is falling into disarray and so he leans on the stoics in terms of just war theory and like yes. develops all of that but even um in his commentary on this passage he makes really clear um that the the meaning of it is found in um John's epistle as well <laughs> and then he goes on to use a, a proverb from um, the wisdom of solomon that if you dine at a ruler's table know that you too um, will have to serve a meal in the same way. And so mm-hmm. he, um, which uh, like it actually reads something. Uh, I tried to look it up. Um, he, he's like, obviously we know what this means <laughs> because obviously uh, he uses that phrase because it's clear for all those who were reading it, which is fascinating because it's not obvious for us today. We're like, why would you go there? Why would you talk about yes. a, yes, a, a king uh, <laughs> having a feast? And that we will have to mm. be hosts like this mm. king has been a host. Mm. Um, and he goes on to say um, that this is um, uh, the, the suffering of martyrdom. Um, so this is the, the nonviolent mm-hmm. witness. Um, uh, to lay down one's life is is to pr- be prepared to not take up arms against um, uh, neighbor, let alone enemy. Um, and actually share in the divine life um, that is this nonviolent self hat emptying even to the point of risking your own life now this is augustine saying this is obvious to all <laughs> <laughs> yet it shows you what galtung was exactly saying that you're drawing upon kelly we are so immeshed in a cultural violence that we can't read this and go oh that makes sense to use it at a military service right like it's actually the opposite of that like yes. it's direct subversion of all of that that's yes. fascinating to me
2: well- um I, I I do think though that this that this problem um, in Christianity as well as in wider cultures
3: mm-hmm.
2: about this sort of misplaced I would call it misplaced ultimate value of of dying for something as a way of showing value um, again is is simply a problem it's I, I you know, I, I think it is in Christianity. Um, it's certainly in, in wider cultures. It's 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 certainly present in U.S. culture today. It, I mean, it's it it it's found uh, in, in uh, across the world in various cultures. And you know, um, we one of the ways that I that I try to interrogate this is to say, why is it that we that we say that we show what we most value by dying for it as opposed mm-hmm. to living, living for it. Um, I, 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 I just think that that is an enormous problem and um, it's, it surfaces over and over and over again across the pages of, of Christian history and Christian theology, but also in all kinds of civil religious cultural traditions as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I really have come to the place of of believing that it needs to be challenged, and we we have to really be suspicious when we see that surfacing, and it surfaces everywhere, all the time, sure. including in, in a lot of Christian theology.
0: Oh yeah. yeah.
2: So I mean, for and I, I, I see my 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 dear brilliant. Friend, the Episcopal priest Beth Reed, oh, in the Zoom, yep. who reminded me that um, the the dominant motif in this passage, and in fact in the Gospel, has to do with dwelling and remaining together. Mm-hmm. And you talked about foot washing, mm-hmm. so that's the dominant motif here. Not dying, right? Yeah. Not um, you know those things. I would suggest seem to be in conflict with one another um if 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 our true value is to dwell together to remain together and that that is what love looks like then w- where does all of this other stuff come from dulce et decorum es pro patria mori that seems to be uh, <laughs> such a departure yeah right but 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 again um what i learned is that cultural violence is preflective We are raised in it, um, we absorb it before uh, we really are critically conscious. And so we don't tend to ask questions about it. We simply go along with it. Um, And then it has an enormous impact on us.
1: Hmm. I remember the very first time I was like, I mean, in some ways you can't say I had never heard of, the way that America uses the term sacrifice in such ways as laying down your life for the nation. Of course, I, I mean, you, I don't think you can live in America and not encounter it in some way, right? But I do remember, and I've written about this and talked about this. In my, I think this was my first year, my, my first year on campus. And a friend of mine, he came in and he was like, Drew, would you die for your country? Oh boy. Uh, And I was like, well, under what circumstances? He's like, no, 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 that's not the question. The question is, would you die for your country? And of course, you know, I'm being like slow. So I'm just like, well, I need to know more details. Like under what circumstance would I die for my country? And we literally went back and forth before like it finally clicked on me. Like he literally meant under all can no conditions at all like under every circumstances are you willing to sacrifice yourself and be disposable to the empire basically right I mean he didn't say in those terms but but it and it just blew me away like for the very first time like really seeing it like unveiled like the heart and what this meant in this young man right who um to him, I mean, he was expressing something deeply sacred and and yes. of deep conviction to him, right? And he was, I think you may be even a little disgusted by me, as I'm at that moment becoming a little disgusted with him in terms of where is this coming from? Like something's just deeply off. But and so you think about that the cultural level of the war, the the war culture, the ideology, the myths that's that people just live by. Um, it is so powerful and it has captivated so much of the church um, and very little of it has been interrogated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, and we might, we might ask how and when did the, um, the epitome of citizenship come to be defined by death? That again, that, wow, what a distortion, right? Well, but, but but that it, it actually goes back you know quite a long ways in um in in in, in the history of the United States as well as in in, in other nations. Mm-hmm. It's so odd if you once once you do and this is again the way that cultural violence often works. Once yep. you once you stop and you do think about it consciously, then you become aware of the distortions. Um, but um, but otherwise other otherwise you don't and and just to follow up on what you said Drew. Yes, um, over these years, I became painfully aware (laughs) of how intertwined all of this is, this sort of civil religious practice with what actually happens in Christian communities, especially across the United States, especially in the post 9-11 period, and especially around national holidays, um, Memorial Day or Veterans Day or 4th of July. So, you know, one of the things that I often in- encourage people to do is to go to their communities and take a serious look at what is happening. What, what, what's being preached on those days? What kinds yeah. of rituals are happening in your church community on those days? How, how, to what degree is all of that simply reifying or repeating. Um, This really death dealing civil religious stuff that you like, you know, that I just showed you with the Trump example that is so rife in, um, in in the political and in the popular spheres of our our nation. Um, And, you know, I I guess I would just say one other thing too, because um, I've also become aware that in the United States, and I would be really interested to hear what what you both think about this in your contexts. But it seems to me, and this has been my own experience, that this is extremely difficult to challenge, precisely for the reason that you named, Drew, that for many people, this has achieved a a, a kind of level of the sacred. And as sociologists of religion teach us, once something is sacralized, it's sort of put off the table of of critical interrogation. It has achieved an aura of awe Yep. And it, it's been transcendentalized. And that means that it's no longer really available for question or criticism. That's right. right.
3: That's right. Yep.
2: So um, it, this, this, this means that, that if you do dare to raise questions and I have found this countless times over the course of, of my life's work, when you do raise questions, people can get really upset with you. Oh, yes. And you are, um, you are, you are, are, are sort of uh declared to be a kind of heretic um, of, of, of this, you know, civil, religious practice. Um, I was called a
1: heretic last spring, I think, Mm -hmm. because I crossed these boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: But, but but I, but I, I really, I, 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 I fear for, especially clergy, who are trying to address these kinds of things in their congregations, you know, uh, I live in Pennsylvania and a number of years ago, I was invited by um, a colleague to preach. It was Memorial Day weekend, I think, and he was going to be gone. And he actually asked me to, to preach about the themes of my work. Um, and mm-hmm. I said, are you sure you want me to do that? <laughs> and he said, yes, he was going to be safely gone. <laughs> so, um, so I did. And. Boy, the people in that congregation really took me to task. They were really not happy with me raising these kinds of questions, especially on a day that they considered to be holy. So I, I really fear for and I I, you know, I I want to hear more from mm-hmm. clergy people about, you know, what's happening for them out there with respect okay. to trying to do this important work. Um, along with all of the other kinds of really, really necessary justice-oriented issues and problems that we have to face. If we don't face this one, um, you know, um, well, I don't even really know what to say. It, it, it simply yeah. must be faced.
0: And Kelly, I think your example there um, of, of what you did on Memorial Day, and for those listening outside the U.S., um, uh do you want to explain memorial of what and uh, it's because i guess it's a equivalent of our anzac day here in australia and in new zealand for that matter but it's a
2: right so this is a day when people have a day off and the idea is that um we are remembering and commemorating those who have died in the wars of the united yeah. states so that's basically it
0: so um it's a, a day it's a high holy holiday of um, sacralized violence, um, where the only way to remember lives, and in Australia, um, uh, the, the language of lest we forget, and uh. Um, uh, the, what it's supposed to be is lest we forget the horrors of war, um, uh, lest we forget, like, the experience, but we actually silence the what we would say is um, uh, the, the diggers, um, those who actually experienced war firsthand. Um, we silence them other than, well, in the words of my uncle PJ, for him to get his Australian citizenship, he had to do two, so, um, two oh, tours of Vietnam.
3: Oh, my. Um, uh,
0: they, they walk you through the street once a year and they stick medals on you, but no one wants to listen to our stories. And and the, the pain of that and what you did in that example of actually um, uh, naming your work is actually an embodiment of what, This is about, usually people start at verse 13. um, uh, Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. Uh, But 12 is all important. My command is this, love one another. Oh, we know what love is. It's taking up arms to defend one another. No, no, no. It's actually, it's narrated. Its definitions are found in the life of Christ. As I have loved you. Mm
2: -hmm. So whenever
0: we um, aren't, uh, taking up a cross and instead of taking up arms we have left what it is that later in the verse where it says um look you you previously didn't understand the dynamics this is how um father james allison talks about this passage you previously didn't understand the dynamics but now you are in on the very life this secret you now share in. this love which self-empties which it's concerned is not merely itself not out of sense of i'm not important but a sense of like um our importance is actually shared and so once you're in the divine life of this self-emptying love, not only don't you take up weapons against another, but you're prepared to lay down your life for another. And like, so you you actually don't. I mean, you don't need uh, to go to the Patristics to go. How, how were they reading this? Um, you can actually just stay uh, not only within John's Gospel, but w- within this chapter, and it's all there. What we're being invited into is the dynamics of um, what the Synoptics would call enemy love. Um, which John's gospel de- defines as like actually sharing in God's love as I have loved you. That's that in it and of itself, I think will subvert um, the, uh, the, the sacrifice motifs both in our atonement theology, but also in the atonement theologies of empire, which continue to demand the sacrifice of more young people for unjust wars.
2: Thank you, Jared. <laughs> Um, I, I guess I would, I, I would say that.
0: Um... I appreciate your hesitation, Kelly. Uh, well, obviously, there, there's one point where you're going over. Oh, We'd love to hear your over. Oh, well, I,
2: I, I, um, I think that an important way forward is to, again, allow the things that are jarring to simply remain jarring. Hmm. So as I read the passage, as I as I think about the passage, and try to, well, I, I guess I don't want to try to rationalize why that one line is there and what it means, and and how it how it 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 fits with the motif of remaining and abiding. Um, those things juxtaposed. Come across to me as 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 jarringly inconsistent with one another, right? And I um I I I want to sit with that. I want to just stay with that, and I don't want to I don't want to really resolve it. I, mm-hmm. in other words, I'm not sure that I really want to try to find a way to resolve. Um, no, uh, a, a man has no greater love than this to lay down his life for a friend. I'm not sure. I want to resolve that. I think I maybe just want to let it sit out there, in yeah. all of its all of its um, ugliness and um, all of the ways. From the time of the poet Horace on, um, it has had these resonances and these um, what these impulses. That exacerbate and justify, and also conceal violence. Mm. Um, and that's and I guess in a way that sort of takes me back to what I was saying about the Bible and the way that I read it. Um, closer to the beginning of our time together, that um, uh, in my life these days, <laughs> I'm more interested in simply uncovering the tensions. And mm-hmm. and I'm 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 more interested in understanding the contradictions and the inconsistencies. And I guess in part that's because in my context um, there is so much turning of somersaults to pretend that they don't exist, mm-hmm. uh, and to um, to resolve them in ways that again only increase injustice and violence. Yeah so let's you know i'm i'm all for um and i guess this also reflects my my context as an academic in not a religious institution but uh, mm-hmm. you know a secular institution um i'm all about throwing all the windows open and letting all the air in and let's okay. ask every single question we possibly can and um uh you know let's Let's just stay there where things are uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, please don't hear anything but yes and amen um, to that from me as well, <laughs> Kelly. I, I guess um, my context, um, uh, uh, so, so maybe familiar to our listeners, but um, I was a part of the Bonhoeffer Four that interrupted 24,000 US and Australian soldiers in life fire training exercises um, uh, on Australian soil that were illegal in terms of uh, Australian law because Australian soldiers were being taught to obey US command, which just made blatant um, uh, the dynamics of US imperialism and Australia's relationship since the Second World War. We have uh, switched allegiances um, from uh, the UK to America as um, who's going to be... Uh, the superpower that we look to to defend us um, because of white supremacy in this part of the world and the fact that we stole this land and um (laughs) so all, all those dynamics and um uh interrupting those live fire training exercises where we were arrested at gunpoint by u.s soldiers who shared these texts, um, uh, the, one of the soldiers who pointed an M16 at me before um, we waited to be taken away and we ended up in solitary confinement, um, uh, was telling me that he goes to Calvary Chapel in California. Um, uh-huh. So it, this, is, this was the embodiment of two very different readings of this text. He was in the military because he read this text not as a subversion of Horace, yes. but as actually an affirmation now with Christian blessing, now I've got Jesus as I do what empires have always done. Um, We were there reading the names of the dead, not merely uh, uh, Australian or US, but um, Afghan and Iraqi Mm -hmm. dead, um, because we read this text as a call um, to enter into the divine love that actually risks our lives for the lives of others. Um, And so why I want to hold that ambiguity Um, I I also want to um, get to what would it be to embody something that becomes an apocalypse where we actually expose these systems as as foot washing exposes uh, and not leave that as a privatized religious um, reality, but actually have that as um, opening up new possibilities for how we can organize society Um, uh, particularly in our unprecedented ecological crisis. So for for me, it's yes to all the ambiguity, um, uh, but also to the embodiment of something that um, opens up new possibilities, exposes the ways things are, and also invites people into the ways that things can be. And that is actually in in keeping with how um, the patristics did read this passage, and also how they talked about martyrdom, not as a suicide pact for um, um, coming out of some religious fervor, uh, but as a participation of the new world coming. So there, there's kind of the things that I want to hold at the same time.
2: I hear you. I hear you, and I I, I really appreciate your saying all that. And and if if I may, I, I'm glad that you're okay, and I hope. Thank you the people who were with you in those actions are also okay. And um, what, 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 again, what I, what you, you were, you were, you were living an an authentic and rich and deep. And, you know, um, I'm going to say Jesus driven life at that moment. Um, And it was living, it was living. Right. Um, And, you know, Those that also is a kind of life that um, there's 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 no there's no ultimate certainty about it. It's always Mm -hmm. a life that is going to entail a certain amount of risk. Yes.
3: Right.
2: And yet, I want to say at the same time, um, let's keep living and let's keep making the kinds of decisions. And it sounds as though this is what you all were doing, making the kinds of decisions to honor your lives. To not hopefully yeah. put your lives into any unnecessary risk, to use the best nonviolent strategy you possibly could to achieve the best kinds of ends. I mean, all of those things, right? Yeah. And yet, is there is there risk in that? Of course, there is. There's there still is, but it's not. I guess the difference is, and that this is what I would hold up. It's not sort of. Um, it's not death driven. It's not. Yes. It's yep. not. It, it's not. Um, it's not death sacralizing it's life sacralizing
3: oh, it's
2: life driven you know
3: yeah.
2: and and so i i you know i commend you and your and your colleagues and um i'm grateful and mm. and i i think that the kind of action that you're describing is is precisely what the world needs right mm, um yeah. <laughs> and may i just say one other thing because i want to speak also to the soldier who, it sounds like, read this or similar texts at yeah. you. <laughs> because I think that there's a germ of moral injury in there somewhere. Of course. Uh, you know, I'm, I, am now having listened to as, as many accounts as, as I have, um, one of the things that I've become aware of is that, frequently, it's not in the midst of some kind of a, a, a military campaign or being in the midst of, of military service that people begin to really understand and encounter and, and suffer with mm. their moral injury. It's after that. In the yes. moment, in the, moment the, the stakes are too high. Um, the adrenaline is too high. Things are happening too fast. You don't ha- even have time to think. But it's after people return to their, to their places where they lived before where they try to pick up their lives and oftentimes it's then that they find that it's impossible in fact to pick up their lives and their lives are falling apart and um so I just wonder you know and and so my question is for a man like this who was quoting these texts at you in the defense of what he was doing one of the questions that I have is Um, To what extent do these kinds of texts and the misappropriation and the misinterpretation of them, does all of this exacerbate moral injury? I mean, imagine that person going home after all of this and perhaps hopefully coming to some sort of sense of his senses and um, finding his heart wounded, right? Right. And um, just finding what he did to be absolutely now intolerable to him, and now what does this mean in terms of this deformed spirituality that he was mm. carrying and enacting? And now what is he going to do? Right. You know. yep. So, um, all the more reason for us, uh, for for those of us I think who are civilians, especially for people who are leaders. In, in in christian communities to try to to try to gather as much clarity, to try to speak with as much clarity about these complicated issues.
3: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. and um, and 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 to to create some distinctions between things. You know, what is in fact life getting what what is death dealing? Can we be a little clearer about this, please? And especially mm. with the ways that we approach the Bible and the ways that yep. we understand these passages and can we please you know acknowledge that there are passages like this one where it's really difficult to do that and where <laughs> we have to do this sort of genealogical excavation and see mm. the ways in which well it's maybe it's maybe been life-giving over here but wow over here it's been really death dealing
0: that's right yep
2: we we've, we've got to be doing that kind of work and we've got to be speaking out courageously about it
0: yeah that's good you know, so the, the very
1: first time, and this is taking us in a slightly different direction, hopefully not too off, but I'm very interested in your thoughts on this, Kelly. The very first time I heard the term moral injury was probably around, I want to say like 2014-2015. That's not one of my like areas of specialties or anything. And and it came up because I was having a conversation with someone and I was trying to find language. I was thinking about race and white supremacy, and I was trying to think about um, like what, how do you describe what white people have done to themselves? Right. I was yep. and I was acting yep. someone else. It was actually a Mennonite friend of mine, and and she gave me the language moral injury and said that you know she explained that it was typically used in terms of uh, war and violence and things like that, but that that might also be a helpful term. And I'm just kind of curious to here, if you have thoughts on, maybe you've done some thinking on how moral injury fits into this long history of white supremacy in an American society.
2: That's such an important question. Thank you. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I did try in the book to address the intersections um, because I think that we have to, and they're mm-hmm. all so ever present. The intersections um, between um, the, the, the moral injuries that arise as a result of our addiction to militarism, militarization yeah. and war, but then all of, also the ways that that is simultaneously linked to um, uh, uh, the, the, the history, the reality of, of, of white supremacy and anti-blackness in the United States. Um, I would also add misogyny, I would yeah, add ecological yeah. disaster, climate change, you know, there are all of these things intersect with one another and exacerbate one another, right, and you start pulling on one thread, and it seems to me, you're, you you have to pull on all of them simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but, but, again, there are just some really interesting um, and, huh, I don't know difficult to sort out complications. um, Because in the United States, I don't know if you're familiar with the new book by Carol Anderson called Second, about the Second Amendment, have you seen this?
1: Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but yeah.
2: It's fabulous, it's so powerful. Um, But you know, her the way that she links the development of the Second Amendment to um, a history of white supremacy and anti-Blackness in the United States, is is just brilliant and um, something that I think again has not been understood or, or addressed in, in the United States, and um, so this the the way in which um, on the one hand um, Black people have been denied their Second Amendment rights over and over and over again, and the Second Amendment in fact was created in no small measure to deny them the ability to defend themselves. Um, But simultaneously, right along with that, I'm aware of the importance for many Black people um, to be able to have weapons, um, to be able to defend themselves, um, even to, you know, at, at various points, to work for the military industrial complex, to work for the defense industries. So these are really complicated, they're really complicated issues, um, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Drew. That we have to we have to work at all of it simultaneously and understand how each one of these is, issues is shaded by all of the others, impacted by all of the others. Um, and you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're saying is that. Um, and actually you both, have, you both have, have, have alluded to this, that moral injury is not only an indiv- uh, something that affects an individual, it is something that also affects communities. And so along the lines of what your friend was saying, because moral injury is about the betrayal of our deepest values, and it's, a, it's about the ways that we betray those values ourselves and the way that we experience them being betrayed or transgressed by others, so of course it would make sense to talk about moral injury in the context of white supremacy because what is that but a betrayal of our, of our core humanity as human beings, right? To, and, and again, this is one of the central aspects of, 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 of understanding what violence is that violence always is based in inequality. It's always based in believing that somehow I can act over against another as if that person or that community was lesser, was of less value than I or than my community. So um, it's it's always about um, this this kind of betrayal and this um, this denial of our most basic humanity.
3: Oh, man. Yeah.
0: Kelly, this has been incredibly rich, and. Um, yeah. uh, I have a heap more questions, but I'm also aware of your time and people are here because they have questions they'd like to share with you. So um, we, we may wrap the official podcast part of things and, and go to Q&A, um, but for people who um, are really interested in your work and uh, want to explore it further, uh, where can people find you?
2: Um. Sh- I- what will be the easiest um my my email address or um they can they can find my book on the on the internet very easily if and um it's easy to get a hold of me or they can find me at moravian university in bethlehem um i'm very accessible through that so what what you tell me what would be most helpful to relay to people
0: uh depending on how many um emails you want to get what we might do is um we might uh uh Act as a in between for you. So, if people would like to contact you directly, we're happy to do that rather than um, put your email up um, directly. But uh, remind people of the name of um, uh, the book again.
2: So, the book is called "And Then Your Soul Is Gone: Moral Injury and U.S. War Culture." And I'm, I might just say that that the, the the over title "And Then Your Soul Is Gone" mm. that yeah. that that is an allusion to language from a wonderful novel by an Iraq war veteran Kevin powers called the yellow birds where mm-hmm. he describes moral injury as acid seeping down into your soul and then your soul is gone and your soul
1: is gone yeah wow yeah I read the intro that was powerful
0: yeah. thank you Kelly
2: thank you so much I no have worries. really I'm- appreciated this conversation
0: the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com inverse.